Hey friends, welcome to the Grace Enough podcast. I am your host, Amber Cullum. Each episode, I sit down with a guest to discuss their life journey and how the grace of God has impacted them along the way. After listening to today's episode, I hope you are encouraged that God can use you right now in the midst of your day-to-day life. Yes, it requires daily surrender and trust, but we must remember His grace is enough. Welcome back to the second part of a two-part podcast series where we are discussing things we can do to flourish as individuals and as families in our digital world. If you haven't listened to episode 71 with Krista Bowen, I encourage you to go back and listen to the steps Krista shares. She shares steps that we as parents and individuals can take to become mentors and guides to the generations coming behind us. Today's conversation is with Justin Early. Justin is the author of The Common Rule. The Common Rule has been one of the best books I have read this year. Today, we talk about habits and how they form us with a particular focus on digital habits. Everything Justin shares today entered his life after extensive reading, research, and practice following a season of extreme anxiety attacks. To be honest, I found myself hanging on Justin's every word. His personal journey is so intimately linked and intertwined with the habits we discuss that I wanted to keep digging deeper and deeper. This is one episode I will forever treasure and return to time and time again. It's even one to share with the men in your life. Also, I'm pretty sure if the Cullum clan and the Earlies lived in the same city, we'd be friends. But I won't bore you with that. Let's get to today's conversation. I just want to take a moment and welcome you, Justin, to the show. Thank you so much for sitting down with me today. You are so welcome. Thanks, Amber. Go ahead and introduce yourself. I mean, I've obviously said your name, but tell our listeners a little bit about you and your family and tell everybody about what you do. I am married to Lauren, my wonderful wife, and have been for going on 13 years now. We have four boys. All right. Their names are Wit who is eight, Asher, who is going to be six next week, and then Coulter, who is three, and Shep. And Shepard is one and a half right now. So Justin, you have them so close together. (laughs) I know, I know. (laughs) (laughs) Your wife is the same. It is. We are realizing um, these years are more intense than we thought, and yet uh, hopefully we're looking forward to the day where we're all kind of stable and there are no more diapers. Um, stability might be a myth with our four boys, but it is it is fun, though it is really loud. So, I mean, I know. I only have two boys, but I do have, and I have a middle daughter. But I will say we have a 10, a 7, and a 4-year-old right now. And I can't believe how much, I don't want to say calmer, but how much easier it is compared to when they were even younger. Oh, good. That gives me so much hope. (laughs) I mean, because the physical aspect of it is taken out a little bit. You know what I mean? Like you're not just exhausted because you're not getting sleep and you're changing diapers and you're still having to feed people. Those Yes. Well, that I mean, it is very physical and that's a good entree into what we like to do. We we do a lot of mountain biking, walking, hiking outside. Um, I do a lot of exercising and weightlifting now uh-huh. so that I can keep up with throwing the boys around and hanging with them. True. <laughs> so those are, those are some of the hobbies. Um, my job is I, I'm, a, I'm a business lawyer 
though I, I do writing and speaking on the side. So I'm, you know, look at my day and I'm, I'm a lawyer and a dad, but some of my days I'm mixing in writing and speaking. That's right. Into that. Well, and so you are in Virginia, is that correct? That's right. Richmond, Virginia. And we would welcome anyone who wants to move here. We're all, all of us here of the opinions, the best city in the United States. Really? I don't <laughs> think I've spent any time in Richmond, Virginia. I mean, I'm in Raleigh, which is not that yeah, far that away. Far. Right. But we've only been here four years, so there's a lot of exploring in Virginia that we've actually talked about that we would like to do in the near future. So that's awesome. You grew well, up there? I, I like, I, I, yeah, it's a complicated question. <laughs> I went to high school here, but those were my coming of age years mm-hmm. where I made all my friends and sort of like I learned to drive. So I was learning my geography the first time. So it certainly feels like I'm from here, though. For the first four years of living in Richmond, I'd st- I lived in Shanghai, China longer than I'd lived in Richmond. So, <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. That's interesting. Well, tell us. I always love to start my episodes with just how did you come to know Jesus? I have a wonderful family, mm-hmm. uh, a wonderful mom and dad, and five brothers and sisters. Wow. And my mom and dad both came to know Jesus in college, in college ministries. Cool. And um, they... They just did an incredible job, I think, of raising us not only to know the tenets of the Christian faith, but to know what it looked like to walk with Jesus, because they both did. Mm. And so I went through you know, my young years, middle school and high school years, um, very sincerely learning along the way to, to love and to know about Jesus. And I did have my um, serious wanderings in late high school and early college where I I describe it as the period for me where I personally never really doubted that the claims of Jesus were true. Mm -hmm. I did experientially wonder if they mattered and if they mattered to me. Mm. And um, through through some significant moral failure and realizing uh, that I was less happy and more ashamed ashamed living the way I was living, I finally, um, I had my really... uh, Jesus, I'm going to follow Jesus, not just because my parents did, but for myself Mm. in early college. And it was really because I started to think about who I was becoming. And I realized I would, I don't like who I'm becoming, but I like who my dad is. I like who my parents are. And just because they, I think, modeled a life of following Jesus so so well, it was the, it was the safety net I fell back into when things went wrong for me. So Came to know Jesus as a very young child, but really learned to walk with him in college. Hmm. I love that perspective. And wow, what a legacy your parents um, have left behind. Don't we all want our kids to say that about us? I think so. And, um, you know, as is probably typical, I've become so much more grateful and in all of them as I've become a parent. Amen. (laughs) When you see just how hard it is to truly walk that out every day in front of these little people that are really testing you in every possible way and not always intentionally just absolutely the fact that they're human beings (laughs) yes yes well you have said and I quote my habits have wrecked me share with our listeners a little about what life looked like for you early on in your law career and just what happened that led you to develop habits of purpose well after really beginning to follow Jesus, as I just told you about in college, um, that led me to following him to be a missionary to China. Mm. So I really 
became um, someone who was committed, you know, and on all fronts, even in my career to, you know, I was going to follow Jesus wholeheartedly. And um, it's a longer conversation, mm-hmm. but the short version is I, after almost five years in China, I felt the Lord calling me to continue to be a missionary, but within the sphere of law and business in the States. Mm-hmm. And I, I just say that's a longer conversation because vocation and calling, I know it's a complicated sentence, but exactly. the important thing for listeners to know is that I, I really did come to law school as a man on a call. And I look back now and I think the the house of my life was very sincerely decorated with the Christian content of calling. Mm. But I look back now and I also realize that the architecture of that life was exactly like everyone else's. I completely assimilated to all the typical practices of, uh, you know, a top top 20 law school, you know, aspiring young lawyer, just busy all the time, mm-hmm. Wait, always waking up earlier, always staying up later, always adding more. Mm-hmm. And that worked in a sense. Um, I graduated around the top of my class and got my dream job at an international law firm doing mergers and acquisitions. And you know, life was going well, of course, until it wasn't. And it fell apart for me rather spectacularly. I, I basically, in the first year of my career, started to have, um, which was unprecedented in my life, major debilitating panic attacks and anxiety. So much so that, um, again, the short version of this story is that within my first year of lawyering, I became somebody who either needed sleeping pills or a couple drinks just to zone out and fall asleep at night. And um, while I would distinguish myself importantly from an addict or an alcoholic, because those are different struggles, I was seriously coping and seriously limping. And it caused me to realize and have to ask the question, how is it that this missionary to law and business became converted to the nervous medicating lawyer? Mm -hmm. And especially in such short order. And the answer for me that I found was by habit. I realized that I, and this was a long realization, and I can go more into it if you like, but after about a year of this, I realized that my my body and my mind and all the anxiety that wrecked it was happening because I had finally come converted to the anxiety and the nervousness and the busyness that my habits and routines worshipped. And I was being formed in anxiety even while I was in my head clinging to, you know, the gospel piece of calling. So I realized I needed to change. Wow. See, yeah, that is so interesting to the point where I actually wouldn't mind for you to dig a little more deeply into that in the sense of what were the things you feel like you were ascribing to that was leading yourself into this place of I need something to constantly cope with the anxiousness? I mean, I know busyness plays into that, but I think we can all say part of how the American dream plays out is a big part of that as well. Mm -hmm. But What would Mm -hmm. you say? Well, yeah, and I think it is important to go deep, more deep into it because I think our cultural moment is familiar with the significance of worldview, for example, that what we believe about the world has a serious impact on our life. Mm-hmm. But I do think we're less acquainted with the idea that the practical ways we live have significant impact on who we become. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's formation at play, mm-hmm. um, running along and beside and intertwined with your worldview. And so for me, the way that I realized this was because about a year into this really dark struggle, I was sitting at a table with two of my best friends, and on the table was this program of daily and weekly habits. 
And I was sitting at the table with my best friends in this program of habits because they were going to keep me accountable to living according to some healthy daily and weekly rhythms. Mm-hmm. And the reason they were doing that was because my wife and I, we had tried, you know, medication, counseling, and all this other stuff to try to get my life back on track. You know, nothing was a real game changer. It was helpful, but nothing was really game game changer. So as a last ditch effort, I thought, well, let's try some just daily and weekly patterns to rein in my chaos. I did not think they would matter because at the time I had no idea how much the most ordinary patterns of our days and weeks actually affect our souls and our mental health in the most extraordinary ways. Mm. I began to drastically change. And that is when I started looking into all this, you know, as a lawyer and a naturally curious person, when, when my life started to really change and when I started to feel like the Lord was really working in an unusual way through sort of common daily and weekly patterns, I just started researching and reading. And part of it was the neurology and the psychology and mm-hmm. realizing how our, our brain becomes attuned to certain habit activities such that our, our head thinking can go one way, but our habit activity can go the other way. And that's very normal. And then I also started digging into the theology of this and realizing that, oh, when your head goes one way and your habit goes the other way, your heart follows the habit. Your loves go with the habit. And so that's when I started to think about habits. And I'm not the first at all. Right. You know, James K. Smith's writings were very helpful for me in this. Others were too. But um, that's when I started to think of our daily and weekly habits from the way we use our phones to whether or not we schedule a Sabbath as as liturgies that actually lead us in rhythms of worship. And that was when it sort of came together for me that, oh, it is possible to believe all the right things, but but very unwittingly worship idols of productivity, busyness, um, exhausting yourself to earn the approval of others, just through the little habits of the ways that you check your emails or never turn off your devices or never schedule a day off. Those are those are real idols, and, and they are kind of the idols of modern American life. And largely the realm of battling those idols is in habit. Wow. Yeah, I mean, your book that obviously has come as a result of those early days of really struggling, the common rule is something that has had a significant impact on my husband and I's life really in just the last couple of months. And so, you know, you say in that that it's a it's a way for people to practice these formational habits that you're actually talking about. And so today we're going to talk a lot about the digital habits. But I mean, with that said, I I would recommend anyone pick it up because there's just so many practical things in there. And I love how in the back of the book, you just write ways that you could maybe implement one of these one day a week to see if it's something that would work for you. That is something that sets it apart a little bit because there's some practical application where you don't feel like, oh my gosh, I know what you're saying, but there's no way I can do it. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So thank you for that. <laughs> oh, you're welcome. I mean, I, I, I did um, all this reading and discovering of the most ancient and commonplace things. Like, I, you know, to me, this is all new. But for thousands of years, right. people have been writing about what we call formation and the spiritual mm-hmm. disciplines. And I do think it's important for anybody taking a look at the common rule habits to know that, that there's nothing there's nothing new to these. They're just modern ways to apply um, the ancient spiritual disciplines to a world of technology, smartphones and busyness. Um, But I'm thrilled to hear that it's been helpful for you and your husband, because what you know, what I was hoping for is there's great theologians to read on this. I just wanted something I wanted. I wrote the book that I wanted that I needed to read at the time. I needed a way to practice 
formation right now. And I was okay with it becoming outdated as technology and culture moved on. But I thought, what, is, what do we need right now? Yeah, well, and when you think about, too, with habits or reading some of the theologians before us who have written so much about spiritual formation, some of the hardest parts about putting it into practice is just even reading the language. So it's so nice to have something that, you know, is just more of like, okay, I'm a working businessman. That was something my husband had said, you know, like, I read parts of this and what I see is this is what my everyday looks like. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. so I got to, you know, these are some things I can adapt. So that was super helpful. But something that you write about the smartphone is that it's it's a tool that enables many things, but it will never multiply our presence. And so what, what do you encourage people to do to begin practicing presence? There are a couple habits in the book related specifically to smartphone, but the one that is really geared towards practicing presence and loving neighbor is the turning your phone off for an hour each day habit. Mm-hmm. And um, for people who haven't looked at the book yet, or um, you can see this if you just go onto the website at thecommonrule.org, but half of the habits um, are, are geared towards loving God, and then half of the habits are geared towards pushing you to love neighbor. And this one in particular is pushing us uh, to, to love our neighbor. So the idea here is that the simple routine of turning off your phone for an hour every day as a habit mm-hmm. becomes a way to ingrain presence in your daily routine. And I think to understand that, you, you have to do a little thinking. And I like to encourage people to resurvey the biblical story cast in the narrative of presence, as in God, God creates us in the Garden of Eden to be with him and to be with each other. And, and the fall disrupts that. We're, we're, we hide from each other. We, we are cast out of the garden. But the whole narrative of Scripture is beginning in the Old Testament with God tracking down his people because he is not content for them to be out of his presence. Um, and you have the, you know, the, the tents and the tabernacles, these manifestations of God's presence amongst his people, but in limited ways. Right. And then you come to the New Testament arc of Jesus with us in the incarnation and the Holy Spirit sent as God's deposit of presence. And then we look to Revelation as the time where, you know, we are reunited in the full presence of, of God and each other again. And th- this to me shows us there is something in our spiritual DNA that is meant for the presence of God and the presence of others. And yet that idea of being present is uh, cursed almost in our modern moment of a screen to distract us at any moment, such that we become the kinds of people who are often with people. We are often connected to people, but we are very rarely actually present with people. Mm-hmm. And so whether this is your roommate, uh, your kid, your coworker, your friend, your spouse, the idea of practicing, I am with you, you have my gaze, or mm-hmm. maybe we're silent, but you have my presence, is a, you, you cannot underestimate its power in relationships. And we're made for relationships. So this is a way to recapture presence in your daily routine. Mm. Well, and yeah, just that constant temptation. I mean, one of the big times is just to grab the phone in the morning and, you know, we wake up, we grab that the phone and we're just all of a sudden sucked into this whole world that really rarely has anything to do with our daily lives. And so you do recommend one of your daily habits is scripture before phone. Um, I mean, this chapter in the book is just gold. But why do you recommend that? 
I recommend that and almost everything else I recommend uh, because of the ways I fail at it and then, and then realize <laughs> that life was better otherwise. Um, but here's, here was the moment, here was a key moment for me. I, the first year of working at my big fancy international law firm that I was at at the time, I was working with my, our London office and London obviously is uh, five or six hours ahead of us here in Richmond. So I was always waking up to half a day's worth of emails mm. in my inbox. And I wanted to do well at the office. So, uh, you know, it became important to me to see what London wanted and try to, you know, get back to them as fast as possible. So it led to this unconscious habit of waking up every morning, checking my phone first thing, yeah. which I never thought was a problem until one morning I woke up particularly early because my son was crying. And uh, five minutes later, I get up to go help him, but five minutes later, I'm sitting on the edge of my bed halfway through a response to the London office when I realize he's still crying. I never even went in. Mm. And um, important for your listeners to know he was fine. He just wanted a pacifier. <laughs> but, right. but it was my wake-up call, literally and um, metaphorically. Suddenly, I just had this glimpse of who I had become, and that was the kind of person who's more attentive to the cries of his office than the cries of his son. Mm. And I started to think, wait, how did I become, nobody wants to become that person, yet as, as I'm opening my eyes, as so many of us become that person by unattentive habit. And so, you know, what happens, what happens to us being the idol factories, you know, the, the people with holes in our hearts that we are, is that we wake up and our heads are asking our phone a really simple question, which is just what do I need to do today? But our hearts under the radar, again, through habit, right? So this is not totally conscious or right. verbalized even. Our hearts are asking our friend a really different question. It's who do I need to become today in order to be lovable? Mm -hmm. You know, anything will be happy to answer that question for us, especially the phone. So when I started my days in work emails, it was, you know, work faster, work harder. This is the way you earn the approval of your coworkers and that, and that justifies your existence in the world today. Mm -hmm. But it can also be social media. You know, we, we go through these liturgies of, um, we don't intend to, but we inadvertently go through these liturgies of looking at other people's lives and envying them and wondering if our picture of our house should look a little bit more like the picture of their house. Or it, may, it might be the news. Um, you know, we start our days in these liturgies of, of, of blame about how other people are making the world wrong and wondering if the world's going to hold together another day. Mm -hmm. we're, it's, we're so swimming in this water that we hardly realize how radically different it is to start our day in scripture to, and, and know the story of the world is that the Lord reigns over the nations that rise and fall. And there is a gospel of peace. Things are going to be okay because he loves you and he died for you. And my, you know, it's important for everybody to know, I do check my email. Um, I actually do engage in social media and I do pay attention to the news, but all of them are now mediated by habits that help me to re remember that Know that the Lord loves you first and, and form a life schedule that allows you to see that on a regular basis and remember that. So then finally, you can go to those things, not looking to earn your love anymore, but looking to share his love. And whether we approach our phones um, looking for love or set out to them to share love makes a world of difference in how we use them. And for me, the practice of scripture before a phone is sort of one of those keystone habits to help check myself on what I'm doing when I go to my phone and thus 
what it's doing to me when I come to it. Well, yeah. And I mean, I think something after I'd read that portion of yours and, and that's something I was putting into practice, primarily it started with, you know, Crouch's book and him just saying, basically parent your phone, put it to bed early and right, let it wake right. up I late. And I mean, yeah. that whole image just is fantastic, right? Like, yes, yes, we need to parent our phones. But I think for the longest time, and I, and I wonder if this is true for a lot of people, that we're so concerned about our teens and these young adults and how they're using phones. But the interesting thing is we're not not, I mean, we're non-digital natives and we're using them the exact same way. But like you said, we oh, don't yeah. even notice our own habits. And I was doing the same thing. Absolutely. And we're actually, I think statistically Worse. a little bit hypocritical. Um, the oh, last, yeah. yeah, one of the last studies that I saw showed that a boomer is actually more likely to check his or her phone during dinner than a millennial is, which wow. is which is interesting. Um, but but what it really shows is that this is a universal cross cross age cross culture yeah. issue, and I think more than anything, I mean, one of the things I love to remind people of is just that we so often. And we're partially trained and taught to do this approach a screen, whether it be our phone or iPad or TV in a restaurant as a neutral device that we can choose either to engage with or to not engage with is just completely wrong. Mm -hmm. The way that we should see this is a, a battleground where where the screen is the battleground of people competing for the attention of our mind, which of which is, of course, to say they're competing for the love of our hearts. And if we don't actually see every screen as a spiritual battleground, where, where are we going to let Jesus direct the love of our hearts or not? Mm -hmm. um, then, we, then we miss out. We, we miss the whole point. And, 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 and thinking they're neutral means that we lose in moment one because they will be happy to guide our hearts somewhere and guide our attention somewhere. The problem is, the, you know, the 1,000 programmers that – by the way, I have PhDs and are exorbitantly paid to get your attention. They know how to do right? it. Um, they don't necessarily love you. They have a goal in mind, and that is to make money off your attention. Um, and you just, this is a mistake we can't make. We can't let our kids make. I mean, we, we've got to learn first and foremost that the screen is a spiritual battleground, just like everything else is. But it is one of the most powerful that exists right now. Yeah, and that's something that I have said to some friends as we've just been in conversation is you know, if you know anything about marketing, if you've read any kind of articles, I mean, now there's enough research and things out there that shows how addictive any screen oh, yeah, is. Right. And the fact that, I mean, the job of a marketer is, like you said, to capture your attention and to lead you to their product. Absolutely. You know, one of my... Um, one of my great friends here in Richmond, who is one of the earliest fa fans of my writing that I was working on at the common rule is a very, very good professional high level marketer. And I think that he encouraged me so much in this writing because he understood that what he does, he understood <laughs> the goal. He, he is out there all the time trying to tell Forge 500 companies the narrative they need to work through the ads that they have and which are now like so much of it is social media strategy yeah. and how to get influencers, you know, to use your product or promote your product. I mean, people like him understand that we aren't rational creatures who, you know, think carefully through each decision and then make it. 
we're, we're emotional creatures that make leaps and gut moves of love and then and then go back and try to rationally justify what we did. Mm. Um, and, and that's a you know, bummer. Depending on, which, <laughs> depending on which view of the human you have depends on how you use your phone. And I think marketers actually, you know, understand this better than anyone. They have a great exam. They have a great window into what a human heart actually looks like. So we probably do well to listen to them and not necessarily just watch their ads. Ah. <laughs> So good. It's like with Steve Jobs, you know, and that whole thing for a while. It was like, there's a reason why all the people in Silicon Valley are saying, we don't let our kids have phones. Yes, yes, yes. So uh... <laughs> it's like, that wasn't a joke. That was for real. Um, well, you also recommend just curating media to four hours a week. And I know that you say, you know, I'm not dead set on this four hours, but you mm -hmm, have to right, kind right. of, you know, you have to kind of curate what is going on in your life and what habit is going to, you know, allow this not to control you. Right. And so tell us a little bit about how you've experienced some freedom through that practice and kind of what that looks like for you and your family. Yeah, definitely. There's, there's two really important concepts there. And one is the idea of freedom and the other idea is curation, but they both come, they both have the shared theme of limitation. So let me start with that. We tend to, in America, think that freedom is the way to the good life and that freedom comes by resisting any limitations mm -hmm. How, however it, it turns out that the, the the biblical definition of freedom and i think you know it is for freedom that christ set you free paul for example has a high regard of freedom yes. but the idea of biblical freedom is that it, it doesn't come by getting rid of all limitations it comes by living under the right ones you know Amen. we find you know, in, in Jesus's light burden, we, we find the, the most freeing path of life. Yeah. And so first, we, we do need to understand, in order to be even be willing to consider limiting your media hours every week, you've got to do a pivot in your mind to understand that the good life comes through not having whatever you want, but having the ability to do what you're made for. Yeah. And, th and that's a huge difference. So at least, you know, worth any listener just thinking about that for a minute. And, and so then that same idea, okay, if limitations are good, you know, how do I pick them well? Well, that's where you get to the idea of curation. Uh, limitations force curation. So we curation is, a, is at least in, in my mind, like it's a nice word. It's a good word. It's what we do when we want to create something beautiful or something meaningful. We take our limited space on an art gallery wall and we curate the most meaningful or the most beautiful exhibit there. So... I try to apply that concept to streaming media, really any media, streaming media might be the most important example of it right now, but apply that example to media because what we should think about when we think about what we watch is not, I'm more virtuous if I watch less or I'm lazy if I watch a ton. I don't actually think that's the right category at all. I think the question is just, how are we curating our media and who, who are we becoming? This is important because not because stories don't matter. It's because stories matter so much. They, they teach us more than any Sunday school lesson, I think, how to understand what the good life is, you know, how to, how to hope for something beyond our moment. What is a hero? What is just and unjust? What's right and wrong? What should, who should we imitate? So stories are powerful. Mm -hmm. And so I think as a follower of Jesus, we should be very, very interested in how they, and, and how to curate them and pick the right ones. And so my simple recommendation there, which I, I think is very hard, so don't get me wrong, yeah. it's simply said, it's extremely hard to do, is to set a limit. And I, I picked four hours of weekly media in the book 
uh, a little bit just to shock people and to be like, are you serious? You could limit your media to that much? You can, actually. <laughs> you can. But I, I don't care if it's 10 or 14 hours. It's just the idea of what if you picked a limit with your spouse or with your roommate who you live with or maybe your small group and you said, we're, we're going to limit ourselves to 10 hours of media a week. All of a sudden, what you have to do if you seriously engage that practice is you have to pick carefully. And that's the whole goal. It's just choose well. Choose, choose things that you watch together rather than things that you just kind of stream in the dark on your smartphone. There's a lot of wisdom to that, by the way. Um, pick, For real. Pick things, pick things that, that, that are beautiful. I, like I would never suggest actually that one watch only quote unquote Christian or quote unquote moral or quote unquote rated certain ways films. I actually think we should pick things that are really well made or really beautifully made or, or things that critics are reviewing for a reason. We should pick things that show us what's actually wrong with the world, that, that kind of make us long for justice. We should pick things that teach us how to hope. There's, there's so many. We're living in a renaissance of TV and screenwriting, frankly. So there's actually yes. there's so many good things to choose. That's kind of why it's hard. But you, but you got to choose because if we don't curate our media, our media is going to curate us. It's the same so idea that, that Andy Crouch brilliantly gets at and parent your phone or it will parent you. Um, mm -hmm. We need a curator. It'll curate us. Yeah, and that whole idea of curation, I love the way that you talk about, you know, you have this canvas. Um, that's a really good word picture for me. And basically, there is a limit to the canvas. It's only so big. And so you have to decide, where am I going to place this picture? How am I going to make this picture happen on the amount of space that I have? And so that gives me a visual of yeah, it's the same thing for media. If you place limits around it, then you are kind of, you're, you're approaching it with more purpose, mm -hmm. which and, is and, such a lovely, I mean, it's just a better way to live. It's, and it's very freeing because anybody who, everybody actually, everybody knows that there's this fear out there that, you know, somebody says, have you watched X? And you're just like, no. Um, and you might feel embarrassed, like, oh, you're not up to speed. I mean, it's just impossible. No one can watch at all. You're always, you've got to get really comfortable with the question of somebody saying, have you watched X? And saying, no, because I've chosen to watch Y. Or, or I've chosen to only watch you know, X, Y, and Z. And um, that's fine. We should be unburdened the idea that we need to keep up because the reality is no one can. But everyone can choose carefully. Yeah. Everyone can pick some great things to watch. No one can watch everything. I love it. I mean, I love it. And that's the thing with... You know, it's not even just TV anymore. It's like you can sit and watch YouTube for forever. You can, I mean, there's just. <laughs> oh, yeah, I would, I would enc strongly encourage people to apply this to news intake, for example. I mean, yeah. you, you can't read everything about current events. You really shouldn't. If you just try to keep up with headlines and current events and tweets, you will have a grim view of reality. Where if, like I said earlier, if you pay more attention to what scripture says about the arc of the world than what Twitter says about the arc of the world, you will, you will understand that actually God is working his king. He's bringing his kingdom. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot at stake in which lens you look at the world through. And, oh, and news yes. media is incredibly important to curate. Yes, yes. I have to just say something about Twitter. I mean, Twitter's so spicy that I can't even. <laughs> it's hard. I'm like, I got to go back over to Instagram. At least people are trying to keep it toned down a little bit over there. <laughs> I, I, it, it is. I mean, it's... It, it, new, News media understands that anger is addictive and that shock will bring you back. And um, they curate accordingly. Again, you curate it or it'll curate you. If it, mm -hmm. And it would love to curate you in shock and anger because as it turns out, strangely, we will tune back in for that stuff over and over and over and over. 
so true. Well, Justin, as we get ready to close out the show, it's funny because we were talking about this before we started recording. So here comes the question for you. I'm going to skip the first question because I feel like probably a time in your life where you really were clinging to God's grace was definitely the season where you had, you know, the the anxiety attacks, the panic attacks. Um, So if you had the opportunity to sit down with your great grandkids and just say, here's some wisdom I'd like to share with you. What's something you would like them to know? I I have to preface with just telling your (laughs) listeners how you sent this to me in an email to think about. And it just dogged me. I thought, oh my gosh, what would I say to them? There's so many things I would, I've thought of (laughs) since then and now, and I've wondered which is the right one. The one that kind of stuck out the most as thoughts just kept passing is just to share from my current life moment and remind my great grandchildren that life unfolds slowly Mm -hmm. and over the long haul and it should. Mm -hmm. And there's so many times where I think I wanted to force every achievement or every new thing. And this might be in my spiritual walk with Jesus or it might be in my career and or more likely it's in the way they're intertwined, intertwined where I just wanted what I wanted now. And um, even, at, you know, in the ripe young age of my mid-30s, I'm just already <laughs> starting to realize that there's the, following Jesus is following Jesus over the long haul. There's, yeah. th- there's a lot of life that has been and it's yet to come. And uh, you, you can p- patience and you can wait. Um, that's just... That's one of the things that I, as I look back and see my mistakes when I was younger, I'm like, oh man, I had no patience and I still generally don't. So maybe my great grandchildren will one day be better at that than I am. But um, the only other thing that I thought of that I wish I could tell them is just that I, I so often wish we could all live at the same time. There's so many times with my dad or with even with my kids now that I'm thinking, what would it be like if we were just all 20 years old together? Mm. I would love to, you know, go on a road trip with these guys instead of having all our difference of ages and health problem hits at different times. And that's when I get excited for the kingdom and just think, well, I can't wait to sit with you, great-grandchildren, around the supper table with the lamb and and let life unfold slowly. Yeah, and just have the conversation. There's such wisdom in that. I always think of the the quote, you know, long obedience in the same direction. Yes. I mean, it's just true. It's a slow formation and praise God. He's like, you know, the good work that I finished in you, it won't be complete until the day of Christ Jesus. Yes. And that's been so actually that verse in particular has been so helpful to me because, you know, him saying that he will bring it to completion is so different than the impatience I have demonstrated so many times of trying to complete my own life in this current moment. Yeah. Rather than thinking that he will bring it to completion over the long haul. So as it typically turns out, the New Testament said it better than I could. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you for bringing that up. Well, thank you so much, Justin, for being here. Tell everybody where we can, I don't want to just say find you, obviously, since we're sitting here talking about curating media yes, and yes, less yes. social media, but as far as in the common rule and just the basic practices. Sure. Yeah. No, I'd love for people to go to the commonrule.org and read more about the habits and you can interact with them there. Um, 
you can find me in a certain way of mediated digital presence on Twitter <laughs> or Instagram. And um, those links are on the Common Rule website. And I, I definitely, it, t- it sometimes takes me a while, but if you message me or fill out a contact form on the website, I will eventually get back to you. So anybody's welcome welcome to do that. And I would love to hear from anybody. Yes, and I highly recommend the Common Rule book. So thanks again, Justin, for being here today. You're so welcome. Thank you for these great questions, especially the great-grandchildren one. (laughs) Thank you for listening to the Grace Enough Podcast. Tune in next time.